It's a movement, but it's about people. Be the People is about we the people joining forces to reclaim and reshape the best of our nation's time-treasured traditions. Each week, we offer insightful interviews with movers and shakers from all different spheres of life. And now, please welcome Dr. Carol Swain. I'm Carol Swain, and this is the Be The People Show. This is the first of two shows focusing on the coronavirus or COVID-19. Over the past four weeks, we've heard a lot of conflicting information about how we can protect ourselves and our families. Often the information seems to change on a daily basis. Joining me today is one of two doctors I'm interviewing about coronavirus, the pandemic. My guest today is Dr. Ming Wang. He's an ophthalmologist in Nashville, Tennessee, who's been on the Be The People show before. Dr. Wang is the founder of Wang Vision Center. Today, he's presenting information from his colleagues from around the world. So join me in welcoming Dr. Ming Wang back to the Be The People show. Thank you, Carol. So Dr. Wang, I've noticed that you've done a recent opinion piece and that you're also doing weekly updates about how people can protect themselves from the coronavirus. And I'd like to hear just your opinion about how we are handling this pandemic compared to other pandemics, such as SARS and, and MERS. Yes, and thank you. appreciate the opportunity, Carol, to be on the Be The People show again. You know, if you look at countries like uh, who have done very well, quite well, and countries that have not done very well in controlling the outbreak, you see in examples like South Korea, which has done very well compared with many other nations, and Italy, which has done the worst. And you ask the, we ask ourselves the question, why? And um, that it turns out the, that has to do with, very much has to do with the early on, in the first few weeks of the outbreak, whether the leadership of the nation, that country got together, and uh, were they able to overcome their differences, their polarizations, and find the common ground, to find a um, immediate come together as a nation, to implement the essential measures in a timely manner. South Korea did that, and Italy did not do that in the first few weeks of the outbreak. Do you know why, uh, why mm -hmm. South Korea did a better job than Italy? Um, I think it has to do with cultural differences in the Far East countries, uh, you know, like um, Japan, China, or South Korea. Uh, people emphasize individual right, maybe a little bit less that, uh, and group, you know, community concept a little bit more. But in the Western countries, as you know, typically, we emphasize individual right more. So when a pandemic comes, like they require a concerted, unified effort when parties need to, to come together, that it tends to, um, situation tends to be better in being able to find the common ground, come together in those Eastern countries rather than Western. Now, one of the things that I have heard is that the countries that had the slowest response were the ones that were listening to the World Health Organization and the initial reports that were coming from China. And those reports were, were downplaying the seriousness of the disease. And so they did not act as quickly as the United States. 
when it came to stopping, you know, some flights from China. That's true. That's very true. Um, there was no question that, particularly in the early phase of the outbreak in December or early January, uh, there was a, a suppression of information. In fact, the whistleblower, Dr. Lee, um, an ophthalmologist also that I know uh, our hospital group knows his, um, you know, his wife works for our hospital in Wuhan. He was a whistleblower and for weeks, the government suppressed his, uh, arrested him actually, suppressed the information, which really resulted in um, a delay in this critical few weeks period to let the rest of the world know this virus existed and what we should be uh, coping with. So that delay information, suppressing information in China really hurt. Tell us about Wuhan, uh, what it's like as a city and because, you know, you are from China and so you can give us a perspective of what kind of city it is. It's a city of 16 million. So to give you a sense, the state of Tennessee is 6 million. So it's like three times the city is three times of Tennessee in terms of the state of Tennessee in terms of population. And the Hubei province surrounding Wuhan city is a province or state for us, 60 million. And um, the, uh, the, the outbreak started there and uh, it, uh, it was uh, discovered but government suppressed information for a few weeks. And later on, it got locked down. It was really the first city on the worldwide scale got locked down. But it's a great question you asked that today because about uh, 12 hours ago, 12 hours ago, Wuhan opened. The uh, lock, lockdown ended. So there was a where the number of new cases has significantly dropped to a new level that government felt comfortable to reopen Wuhan today. Well, that is some very uh, interesting uh, information. And I know that a number of the members of Congress in the U.S. and some of the medical experts, uh, even those advising the president, they have expressed concerns about the wet markets uh, and that the wet markets, they would say, need to be closed down. What's the difference between a Chinese wet market and a market you might go to in New York City or some cities where they also have markets selling meat? They are basically the same, but different in scale. The Wuhan wet market where lots of uh, raw animal meat are consumed is much larger in scale than any other mar wet market in the rest of the world, such as New York. And this virus has been existing in animals, in bats, for a long time. But it was really probably early December, the first time that this virus mutated enough be able to for first time infect human beings so most likely the virus came from the wet market or raw animal market um, in Wuhan and the Chinese government has sh since shut it down and I really hope it will not uh, ever be reopened. Well we're going to take a break uh, right now and when we return we'll just continue this conversation. Each week the Be The People Show presents interviews with insightful guests from the world of politics, religion, media, and culture. The Be The People Show is on podcast. It offers bonus footage. To listen to Be The People online, go to the BeThePeopleNews.com website and subscribe to the Be The People podcast 
heard also on the America Out Loud Network. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm back with my guest, Dr. Ming Wang, and we're talking about uh, the coronavirus and how you can protect yourself and your family uh, from contracting the disease. And so, Dr. Uh, Wang, what do you think is the most important thing that families need to know in the United States when they think about this disease? Because much of the country, as you know, is shut down. Uh, You know, people being asked not to leave their homes unless they're involved in an essential business or they're shopping or going to the doctor. So uh, what else do we need to know or do? I would say probably most important things are three things. First, to recognize how the virus gets into our body. Second, to know what are the two principal modes of transmissions. And finally, what are two most important things to do to protect ourselves. First, there are three portals the virus gets into our body. The, The virus does not go through our skin. So the, the, our dirty fingertips could have virus, but it doesn't affect us. It gets through into our body through eyes, nose, and mouth. That's why American Academy of Ophthalmology has recommended that, um, that in upcoming years, when this virus being with us until vaccine become available, contact lens wearing may not be as safe as before. And second is two modes of transmission, mainly by surface and uh, air surface. It can hang on various different surfaces, this virus, for up to three days. And air, because the virus can suspend itself in aerosol, it can suspend for as long as eight hours. Let me ask you this. Like, if I'm outside and I'm walking, which I frequently do, and there's someone on the sidewalk, and so they're walking, and I step out in the street, do my safe distancing, I step back to where that person just passed. Is there any danger there if that person had COVID-19? Very good question. Because this virus can suspend itself in aerosol, theoretically in the space where that person was for the next eight hours, that virus could be still suspended in the air. However, there's a big difference between aerated outside environments such as park versus enclosed door shut, window shut, small conference room. In the park, there's generally not a problem because enough air convection that will carry the virus away. So we, as long as you stay social distancing and you're jogging and you stay you know, six feet from that person talking, generally not a problem, even if you walk into that space subsequently because enough airflow carries those virus away. However, opposite mm-hmm. is true for small enclosed conference room and the air doesn't flow um, there's no uh, perturbation of airflow, so the virus suspends in those aerosol for many hours. And that's the reason why this virus is so deadly. It is the most infectious virus that we have ever come, into con- uh, come across as a human being. In South Korea, for example, a church of 20,000 people, just one service, two hours, 
significant portion of these people got infected through air transfer in the enclosed space. And we know that the disease does not uh, affect everyone the same, that there are some people that may get infected, they don't show symptoms, or they have a mild case of it. What is it about those individuals that would make them have a mild case of it, not even know they have COVID-19, and the others who get sick very quickly, even though they're healthy? Uh, the main question has to do underlying health and age. 98% of the COVID-19 patients can heal within the two or three weeks, and uh, one to two percent die from this disease. And uh, so two risk factors mainly. One is age. Uh, Two-thirds of the patients who died from this disease are over age 50. So, but you still have some young patients up to one-third under age uh, 40 or 50. And second has to do with underlying immune conditions or health. Uh, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, various different um, uh, immune conditions or on cancer therapy, or various, and smoking. If you want to right. suppress your immune system, you smoke, and that will make uh, one much vulnerable to a severe form of the disease. And the other thing, question, related question is why some of the young people die, you know, 30 years old from COVID. That has to do with viral load. If you have single exposure from distance, the virus getting to system is very small, so one our immune system usually is able to overcome. However, uh, for repeated exposure, close proximity, such as many healthcare workers, even though they're young and healthy, but they got so much virus into the system, immune system will ramp up so quickly, causing what we call cytokine storm. And for these young, healthy people with no immune problem, it's their own immune system overreaction is what killed these young patients. Well, um, what about the comparison between the COVID-19's death rate, which is 1% to 2%, and other pandemics we've had, like SARS and MERS? They had a much higher death rate, yet we didn't do all of these things, such as a shutdown. Yes, uh, very good question. Uh, SARS uh, is certainly a lot more deadly than this COVID-19. However, we don't remember shutdown like this, you know, 15 years ago with SARS. Why? Because most of viruses are either very deadly like SARS, but not very infectious at all. But some other viruses are very infectious, but not very deadly, such as common flu virus. But this particular virus, COVID-19, is being able to process basically both properties. It is very, very, very infectious. It's the most infectious ever we have seen through air um, distant travel like this. But also in terms of deadliness, it's not that low. It's quite deadly. Worldwide, the um, percentage death is only average about 2 to 3%. But in countries like Italy, it's as high as 12 to 13%. And Spain is about 11, 12%. So, um, the average eventually will come out probably about 3% or so. So it's not, so this virus is very bad because it's most infectious, but also quite deadly. So I think we should, we should take a break and I will ask my next question. What if there was a book that took the mystery out of prayer, one that made it easier for people to pray God's word with miraculous results? There is such a book, Joy Lamb's The Sword of the Spirit, The Word of God is a Handbook that has changed the lives of thousands of people around the world. You can order your life-changing copy from Joy Lamb's website, The Sword of the Spirit Book. 
www.thepeacefulwomanofgod.com. Order Joy's book and listen to her audio prayers while you're there. I'm back with my guest, Dr. Wang, and we're continuing our conversation. Uh, Dr. Wang, I'm sure that you probably heard uh, some people that have, have speculated the disease that it's so deadly because it was enhanced in the Wuhan lab of, I guess, virology, that they were experimenting on bats and human coronavirus, and that there's a possibility that there was a lab, yeah, that there was an accident, and that's how it got into the uh, human population. And they would argue that that may be why we don't have a natural defense against it. Um, there are all kinds of different theories and speculations. Um, what is the initiation of the virus? But most evidence so far has pointed out to that wet market in Wuhan and uh, the transmission from bat to human. Um, there, uh, because the initial group of cases were identified are these people who eat, ate those raw meat at the wet market are not, were not the people who are associated with any scientific experimentation or any university or laboratory. So, so far the evidence is pointing that the virus has been existing probably for a long time in those animals, but it never mutated enough to infect humans. But sometime in December, one virus, the case number zero, was able to, in one of its mutations, being able to effectively infect humans for the first time in history. So it's the viral uh, mutation. And this virus is very mutate, uh, mutatable, meaning in the past two months, there have been at least a dozen or so mutated form. That makes the vaccination development, vaccine development right now, much more challenging. The best estimate is va- uh, the vaccine will become available at the best scenario, in the best scenario early 2021. So until then, 99% of us who have not been infected in this go around will remain vulnerable until vaccine become available. Well, they also are uh, testing people for antibodies. And I've heard at least one theory that back in the fall, when a number of people got sick in America, you know, they were coughing and just had uh, various uh, respiratory uh, illnesses that just sort of lingered until they went to the doctor and got treatment, that they may have been exposed. And so that maybe the disease has been in America longer than uh, we think. About 20% of the common cold, common flu cold every winter are coronavirus. Not this particular strain, corona, COVID-19, but general class of various different kinds of coronavirus. So coronavirus uh, have been with us for a long, long time. In fact, most of us, almost most of us, probably you, Carol, me, we have been infected by some other kinds of coronavirus in our uh, flu, uh, you know, common flu symptoms in years past. This, so every uh, winter we have some coronavirus infection with symptoms like this. However, this particular COVID-19, the mutated form appear, as far as we know from scientific evidence for the first time in early December in Wuhan. And uh, this virus will remain with us. Prob- eventually the prediction is about probably 20 to 60% of our, all of us will get infected by this virus in upcoming years. And the social distancing, all these will delay it. And the whole game plan is to delay the uh, rising in most of us, um, delay that enough so that vaccine becomes available. Well, the next question I have for you has to do with the testing. 
if I had the human coronavirus, you know, last fall, some strand of it, and they tested me, would I show up as having COVID-19 uh, if I were tested? Um, in those testing, um, there's specific tests for the common flu, which includes some other kinds of coronavirus and COVID-19. They're distinctly different tests through DNA polymerase, polymerase chain reaction. And uh, in probably 90% of the cases, scientists can pinpoint whether you have the common cold, flu, including some other kinds of coronavirus, or this particular kind of coronavirus, COVID-19. Generally, what can tell? In fact, many reporters on the news, they're saying that they were tested, you know, um, several reporters, I heard that, being tested negative for the common flu, including other kinds of coronavirus, but then they were tested positive for COVID-19. So these tests are different and results are distinctly different. Another thing that I have heard uh, some doctors say is that um, the way they've been testing with the a swab, the nasal swab, that that test in particular is prone to give false positives and that as many as 60% of those that got the nasal swab uh, got a false positive because the person administering the test didn't push the Q-tip or whatever it is they shove up your nose high enough. Yes, that test, the preliminary chain reaction, which is the first test become available for COVID-19, has lots of false positive and particularly also false negative. And uh, when the test was not conducted properly, you did not get to where the area the virus is in the back of your nose or throat, then the virus you didn't pick up, you end up uh, uh, in a false negative situation. And uh, the new test, which is antibody-based, is much more it's much better. It has much less false negative rate as such. And because they test the antibodies that the human being, this person generates. So if you detect the antibody, um, there's no way the person's not infected because the only way the person can mount antibody reaction is being infected and immune system reacts to it. So in combination between these two tests, the original polymerase chain reaction for DNA for the presence of virus at the back of your throat and nose, combined with antibody tests now that test your immune reaction. Combine them together, we have probably 95% um, uh, accuracy or less than 5% false positive or false negative. Are you encouraged by the amount of testing that's already taken place in the United States? Yes. We had a slow start. CDC, in a postmodern uh, study of this whole crisis, I think CDC will have to bear lots of responsibility. The CDC did not have the tests ready and those few test kits, few batches did not work. That's awful. And yeah, they did. When the outbreak started in January, the WHO, World Health Organization, provide the um, testing kits for all nations, well-tested well testing kits. South Korea, Japan, and other countries, China, all took that WHO's test. For some reason, CDC, we rejected, refused to take WHO test that wants to develop its own viral uh, COVID-19 test. And that is a mistake. So um, did not take the WHO test and CDC had its own homemade, so to speak, and did not work in the first few weeks, which really, really hurt our nation. And uh, 
since then, United States really have come on very strong with uh, the president's leadership and lots of uh, effective measures that have been criticized early on, which turned out to be wise, which is like blocking air traffic from China and all that. And uh, uh, in particularly that the testing has been gone. United States now leads the world in the amount of testing we do in, on a regular basis. And we are doing more tests faster than any nation um, on this planet. I, I look at the situation almost like World War II. You know, the war broke out in Europe and the country were fighting, but when the United States got into the game, really turned the whole tide. Not only in testing, in showing a good case of um, uh, identifying the disease, of course, we had to do a lot better in the availability of the medical equipment, but also in the research. Because when the United States scientific community got engaged, and that's the most powerful force, offers the best hope we can ever find a cure or vaccine for this. So when the U.S. get involved, the world will change. That's a great endorsement of the United States. Um, that's great. Um, now... I, I, now I'm sure you know that, of course you know this, that the World Health Organization has come under a lot of criticism because of the way they handled uh, the pandemic, the information they gave out initially about whether it could be spread person to person, just various um, missteps they made. And there's also the sense that they have become a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party. Those are some of the things that I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely early on that because of China's re uh, suppression of the information in December and the World Health Organization just basically took that information without dis you know, discrimination, discerning or checking, result in the complacency, if you will, for the rest of the world. And the general information during those times that it is controllable and is a disease that um, is not going to be at that bad. And uh, I think uh, World Health Organization kind of made a similar mistake as the United States made in early on in terms of not having testing kits ready. World Health Organization was, uh, uh, you know, uh, too complacent. Since then, I think World Health Organization has done a reasonably good job and in terms of recognizing the early complacency that's wrong and really push the concept of testing and other things. Um, so I think World Health Organization certainly could have done better. Well, Dr. Wang, uh, is there anything else that you would like to say uh, about COVID-19 and what people should know before I give you an opportunity to talk yeah. about what you do? Uh, I would say probably two things. One is um, if anyone has questions, because as you mentioned, uh, Carol, in the beginning, there's so much information and, uh, in the media and so much political bias and all that. It's very difficult for average citizen to find out the essential medical information that they can use for each one of us to protect ourselves, families. And I'll be happy to conduct some, you know, more of uh, what I've been doing, webinar, and to help uh, answer questions to, for the general public. Anyone wants to contact me, uh, my, uh, my website is wangvisioninstitute.com. And again, I'll be happy to do that. I do the webinar only uh, on a daily basis to help the public extract, distill, summarize the most key information that every citizen needs to know. And the second, I just want to quickly comment regarding the eyes since I'm an ophthalmologist and probably three things. One is 
eye, mouth, and nose are the three main portals of disease entry. As long as we block, block all these three portals, each of us will be fine. And the second, uh, the, uh, the infection associated with eye with this virus is conjunctivitis. And number three, probably most importantly, that because the way we wear contact lenses, we push our fingers to our, um, the, you know, to, into the eye and fingers likely to be dirty in this pandemic and beyond. Generally, American Academy of Ophthalmology has recommended that there appears to be increased risk of um, contact lens wearing. So if one wear contact lenses, maybe should not wear very much, you can still wear glasses or have laser vision correction. Well, Dr. Wang, thank you so much. And you are truly a great American. Uh, that last interview we did we, it was about your life and how you fled from communist China and the things you've been doing all over the world. And so I applaud you and the people that know you, love you, and we appreciate so much what you're doing uh, right now for the COVID-19. Uh, Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Well, folks, you've heard uh, Dr. Wang, and we've gotten some great information on this show. And information is life-giving. So it's up to us to use that information to protect ourselves and our families. We, the people, can be the people who change our nation and our world. Until next time.